In London, this is The Economist, with Tasting Menu, an appetizing collection of our finest reporting and analysis from the week. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and on our menu, Cuba's revolutionary economy is holding back tourism. Swiss watchmakers try to keep pace. And why Egypt's president loves Donald Trump. But first, in a hole was our cover line this week. The Trump presidency is caught in a sand trap, scrambling to get out. This may seem like good news for his critics, but his weakness is bad for America and bad for the world, as our cover leader argued. Donald Trump won the White House on the promise that government is easy. Unlike his Democratic opponent, whose career had been devoted to politics, Mr. Trump stood as a businessman who could get things done. Previous political experience didn't really seem necessary. Enough voters decided that boasting, mocking, lying and grabbing women were secondary. Some Trump fans even saw them as the credentials of an authentic, swamp-draining saviour. But 70 days in, Mr. Trump seems to be struggling. A health care bill promised as one of his first acts suffered a humiliating collapse in the Republican-controlled Congress. His repeated attempts to draft curbs on travel to America from some Muslim countries are being blocked by the courts. Some might feel relieved at this governmental quagmire. For those who doubt much of his agenda and worry about his lack of respect for institutions, perhaps the best hope is that he accomplishes little. But this logic, although tempting, is unsound. A weak president can be dangerous. Picture a trade war, a crisis in the Baltics, or conflict on the Korean peninsula. Most worrying for America and the world is how fast the businessman in the Oval Office is proving unfit for the job. Grab a copy of the latest issue to read all of our analysis of Mr. Trump's unique performance in the American presidency. Though he's been having a tricky time governing, Mr. Trump may find some solace in the admiration of another national leader. An article in our Middle East and Africa section explained why Egypt's president loves Donald Trump, but also how the country's media can really exaggerate a bromance. Donald Trump's decision to give up his salary as president was not inspired by similar gestures made by previous American leaders, such as Herbert Hoover and John F. Kennedy. No, no, no. There is a far more obvious answer half the world away. Rather, Mr. Trump was following in the footsteps of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the president of Egypt, claimed two Egyptian newspapers. Mr. Sisi, after all, is Mr. Trump's role model, said an Egyptian television host. Such fake news is easily debunked. Mr. Trump promised to forego his salary before ever meeting Egypt's strongman. But the relationship between the two leaders has captivated Egypt's scribes and talking heads. Many are praising the bonds between the two strongmen and perhaps inflating them. Take Mr. Trump's phone call to Mr. Sisi in January, which the White House described in anodyne terms. Egyptian journalists, by contrast, were ecstatic. Whether or not it is true love, the two do certainly have some things in common. Both men are prickly, imperious and prone to spreading conspiracy theories. Ah, now to Cuba for a healthy dose of sun, sand and socialism. 
the age-worn island is attracting a lot of tourists, but fewer than there ought to be. As an article in our Americas section explained, the revolutionary economy is becoming a bit of a drag. Few places are as naturally alluring as Cuba. The island is bathed in sunlight and lapped by warm blue waters. The people are friendly, the rum is light and crisp, the music is a delicious blend of African and Latin rhythms. And the biggest pool of free-spending holidaymakers in the Western Hemisphere is just a hop away. But there is a blemish in this perfect picture. Cuba is a communist dictatorship in a time warp. For some, that lends it a rebellious allure. But for others, it is a sticking point. The big hotels, majority owned by the state and often managed by companies controlled by the army, charge five-star prices for mediocre service. Showers are unreliable. Wi-Fi is atrocious. Lifts and rooms are ill-maintained. These little niggles trickle down from the top. With better policies, Cuba could attract three times as many tourists by 2030, estimates the Brookings Institution, a think tank. Read more in this week's issue. We leave the dusty streets of Havana and head to Asia, where there's a growing kerfuffle over a crucial commodity. Sand is the most extracted stuff in the world, used in concrete, glass, and electronics, to name but a few. But the world's supply is running dry. In our business and finance podcast, Money Talks, our correspondent, Roshana Shanbok, explained where global demand is highest. By far, the, the largest consumer of sand is Asia. And in particular, over half of all the sand consumed goes to China, where uh, construction activity is particularly rapid. The Chinese government says that it's built about 32 million houses and about 4.5 million kilometres of road, and all of that requires sand. So while Asia finds itself in a tumult over the scarcities of sand, in the watch industry, a battle is being fought over space on the wrist. In the face of a recent boom in wearable technology, Swiss watchmakers are trying to keep pace. Exports of Swiss watches sank by a tenth in 2016, the worst performance since the financial crisis. Swatch, the world's biggest watch company, saw profits plunge by 47%. Despite these unsettling figures, watchmakers are still tinkering away. In La Chaux-de-Fonds, a watch manufacturing hub, workers toil much as they always have, at chin-high desks, using slim instruments to assemble springs, wheels, jewels and other tiny parts. Yet in the long term, concern lies largely with the young. Will they consider the watch as a possible status symbol or as an information tool or as a design product, asks Jean-Claude Bivet, who runs the watch business at LVMH, a luxury goods conglomerate. Who knows, he says. What's clear is that the times they are a-changing. To find out how some of the more time-honoured watchmakers are reacting, have a look in the new issue or visit our website. Our science and technology show, Babbage, which I host, highlighted one piece of wearable technology which could mean the difference between life and death. Detecting toxins is a dangerous game. But a new glove fitted with a specific gel and electrodes could now detect when deadly agents are around with touch alone. 
Our science correspondent, Matt Kaplan, explained how the technology might be used in the future. If you could get something into one of these gels that reacted with, let's say, dynamite or other compounds that are associated with explosives, you could conceivably see, like, a team of 10 special forces troops outfitted each with a different glove that's got a different semi-solid gel with enzymes in it that react to different dangers. From the danger of toxins, we now head to the danger of linguistics. Changes in official language can spark bitter feuds, but our language columnist, Johnson, never shies away from conflict. Writing in the pages of our Books and Arts section this week, he wrote a column in praise of the singular they. At a recent meeting of the American Copy Editors Society, the Chicago Manual of Style and the Associated Press, or AP Stylebook, both widely followed, announced a change that sent waves through the audience. Oh, dear listener, brace yourself, sit down, be careful. It's coming. You know it's coming. You didn't want to hear it, but you're hearing about it first here. In AP's wording... They, stroke them, stroke their, is acceptable in limited cases as a singular and or gender-neutral pronoun when alternative wording is overly awkward or clumsy. Right now, in Ridgewood, New Jersey, there is a high school grammar teacher who has just experienced a heart attack and died. To understand the controversy, perhaps a little background is needed. English lacks an uncontroversial pronoun that lets you talk about a person of a generic or unknown gender, known as an epicene pronoun, from the Greek for common to all genders. For example... Some would say that each president chooses his own cabinet is epicene, but psychological research proves that the his calls to mind a man. If you truly believe his is gender-neutral... Try Steve, Sally, Mary and Jane each had his hair cut today. So the controversial solution proposed by the Associated Press, Chicago Manual Style and The Economist in a forthcoming edition of our Style Guide. Each president chooses their own cabinet. Some people say it is illogical. Each president is singular and their is clearly plural. Efforts to use their instead of his are modern political correctness running roughshod over grammatical good sense. But the alternatives are far worse, explained Johnson. He or she quickly becomes wearisome on repetition. Alternating he and she is distracting. Inventing pronouns does not help. From Hirsch to Z, made-up gender-neutral pronouns have never taken off and probably never will. Hirsch is probably right or Z for that matter. But sadly, that's the end of this week's tasting menu. You can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue, along with many more, and find our other podcasts on our website. Feedback about our audio content should be sent by email to radio at economist.com. And if you enjoy the program and enjoy the content, consider taking out a subscription. In London, this is The Economist. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. 
Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.